Tom Bernard Show with Andy Brant Bernard and Mike Bellina. And we'll be right back. Part three, Tom Bernard Show. Michael Bryant, Brad Sean Bryant, what's the latest? Well, basically, we're trying to represent people who have been hurt and talk to them before they talk to an adjuster. Uh, one of the key points is to make sure you know what your rights are before you start talking to the insurance company and they start asking you questions or they try to settle your case early and cheap. Well, what's interesting to me is, you know, a lot of people have fear of attorneys. It makes them very uncomfortable. They get nervous about it. What should I do? I've known Michael for years and years now, and I would highly recommend you. So that should be good enough for everybody because I don't endorse people who are dirtbags. Well, I, I appreciate that. Um, but I guess the key is, is people think I'll charge them if I talk to them. Right. So a lot of people call me up. It's like, how much is this going to cost if you call me back? Like, you want me to call you back? How much will that cost? I don't charge people. The only way I get paid is if we recover, um, if we get money from the, the other side. And there's a lot of people I talk to that I never get paid for that are just part of giving them advice to make sure they know what they can do and what their rights are. And your record's terrific as well, we should point out. Well, it works. It's been good. It's been good, ladies and gentlemen. It's been good. And how do they contact you? uh, Either through our website, which is minnesotapersonalinjury.com, minnesotapersonalinjury.com, or at 800-770-7008. Michael Bryant, Bradshaw, and Bryant. Walzer Automotive is a Minnesota family-owned business. It started in the 50s. It's grown by leaps and bounds, especially in the past few years, and they now have 23 dealerships spread across two states. The Walzer way includes upfront, no-haggle pricing on every single new and used vehicle they sell. If you change your mind, no problem. Check out Walzer's three-day return and 30-day exchange policy. I'm a customer, my family are customers, and many of my friends have bought cars from them. The Walzer way is really different, and I know you'll be pleasantly surprised. For great deals on new or used Acura, Audi, Buick, BMW, Chevrolet, Chrysler, Dodge, GMC, Honda, Hyundai, Jaguar, Jeep, Land Rover, Lexus, Mazda, Mercedes, Mini, Nissan, Porsche, Ram, Subaru, or Toyota, go to Walzer.com, Walzer Automotive Group, Walzer.com. Yes, I did hit the post. Thank you very much. Uh, Mike Molina brought this up earlier. Men in Minnesota live longer than those in any other state. Minnesota women rank fourth. Those above average findings were published this week in the Journal of the American Medical Association. Overall, residents of the North Star State have the fourth longest expectancy with an average lifespan of 80.8 years, ranking behind only Hawaii, California, and Connecticut. According to the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation in the, at the University of Wisconsin, uh, excuse me, the University of Washington, Mississippi had the lowest life expectancy with an average of 74.7 years. Minnesota men posted an average of life expectancy at 78.7 years. Women with an average life expectancy of 82.9 years ranked fourth in the nation. That means that Catherine will probably outlive me by 12 years. What the hell? Where are you getting 12? Well, because she's going to live four years longer anyway, and she's eight years younger than me. Well, yeah, I suppose. See? By that definition, yeah. By that definition. I don't understand why uh, men in Minnesota live longer than those in any other state, and then they show Louis C.K. working out with weights. What's that all about? (laughs) 
Tell you what, though, I don't know if I'd want to mess with that guy. He's doing uh, bicep curls with 45-pound barbells, so uh, huh. I don't know if I want to mess around with that guy. He's got some strength. The boy's got some strength, man. Uh, Minnesota residents overall lead the nation in healthy life expectancy at 70.3 years. Healthy life expectancy is defined as years of life spent in full health. Uh, the study covering 333 diseases and injuries and 84 risk factors looked at the impacts of disease in all 50 states to come up with its findings. Minnesota has a lot to be proud of and a lot of work on when it uh, to work on when it comes to our public health, said Minnesota Health Commissioner Jan Malcolm. Our strong performance relative to other states is encouraging, but the report clearly shows big challenges that must be addressed. You know, Minnesotans are like that. They can never just be happy <laughs> with, hey, we live longer than everybody else. No, there's some huge problems. Out there. I know. It's like, good God. Nothing is ever good enough. Yeah, nothing's uh, ever good enough for Minnesotans. We are the weirdest people on earth. Oh, it's funny. That Smoke picture beer. is not Louie. I know it isn't. Oh, okay, perfect. It looks just like yeah, it looks it's a dead ringer. <laughs> That guy is a, a dead, dead ringer. For Louis C.K. <laughs> <laughs> Although, like I said, he's doing 45-pound curls, so I don't know if I want to mess with him. Yeah. Smoking was a top risk factor causing death and disability in Minnesota. According to the study, other factors in the top five included obesity, high plasma glucose, high blood pressure, and alcohol use. Low back pain was atop the list of health issues causing Minnesotans to live within uh, years of disability. Followed by depression, study authors also cited dramatic increase in Minnesota's disease burden due to diabetes and opioid use between 1990 and 2016. Nationwide, the five leading causes of death are heart disease, lung and trachea cancer. Oh, God, that'd be fun. That's when you get that deal. I was talking to him yesterday. Yep. The electrolarynx. That's from trachea cancer, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, COPD. Uh, Alzheimer's disease and other dementias and cancer of the colon and rectum. So it's like smoking, 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 and smoking. Yeah, pretty much smoking is a big problem we have in Minnesota. Yeah. I do have to check out the comments on this because there are 18 comments. So do you think anything's going to be good enough? I haven't looked at the comments yet. Here we go. The low taxes in Mississippi did not seem to extend life. I knew they had to take a shot, a political shot there somewhere. Uh-huh. I just knew there had to be politics involved. We need the extra time to shovel all the snow, which is a pretty good line, yeah. actually. <laughs> why, do, uh, why do men die before their wives? Because we want to. Kenny Youngman. Well, just not living in a southern state was part of the old Confederacy. Uh, has to put up with at least, uh, put at least another 10 years on your life. You're going back 150 years? Yeah, I don't think the Confederacy really has any sway on anything anymore. It's not even, it's 170 years now, isn't it? 165, 70 years, something like that. Uh, well, not just, yeah, okay. Uh, reminds me of a funny line in the movie Kingpin, Woody Harrelson to down and out bum, how's life? Uh, and the bum says, taken forever. Actually, what he said was, so get the, uh, get the razor blade out. He said... How's life? And the bum says, taking way too fucking long. That's what he says, actually. <laughs> if you don't like winter, you're living in the wrong state. How comments like yours get past the moderators baffles me. Oh, even over this, the fact that we live longer in Minnesota than any place else, they have to get in an argument over that. <laughs> They're arguing over good news. Well, it's good news, damn it. I hate good news. Settle down for Can you enjoy anything? Is there anything in life you can enjoy? 
I don't know what the story is with this with with this uh, tale I'm about to tell you. I just popped up in the newspaper today. The case of the mummified monkey of Minneapolis took a couple of turns Thursday. Do you know anything about that at all, Molina? No, never heard the, of it. The mummified monkey? I never did either. The case of the mummified monkey in Minneapolis took a couple of turns Thursday thanks to a video confession of a monkey thief and a competing theory raised by the governor. The tale unfolded after a photo of the mummified monkey remains was uh, posted on Facebook by a member of the construction crew at the former downtown Dayton's department store. The intact skeleton revealed itself in a ceiling during the renovation. On Tuesday, Robbinsdale Mayor Reagan Murphy tweeted that his dad, Larry, had once stolen a monkey from Dayton's. Reagan Murphy's mother, Monica, said her late husband told her about it back when they were dating in the 1960s. As news spread, the family of one of the monkey nappers came forward. I can confirm the story of the monkey told by Monica Murphy and Reagan Murphy. Uh, Email Jessica Christensen, a first grade teacher in St. Michael. My dad, Tom Netka, was with Larry Murphy. They were about 15 years old when they stole the monkey from Dayton's. Why would there be a monkey in Dayton's? I worked there when I was 16 years old as a stock boy. I don't remember any monkeys. Christensen said her family heard the tale many times growing up and even got their dad to tell it on videotape in 2016, months before he died in February 2017. They volunteered the video to the Star Tribune to share. Netka tells the Assemble family there was a pet shop at the downtown Dayton's. See, when was that? In the early 60s? Apparently, because I don't remember there being any any monkey or pet shop or maybe there wasn't maybe there were dogs there were like dogs and cats but i don't remember any monkeys i don't know yeah this says the eighth floor pet store in the 1960s the eighth floor pet store well, eighth I, floor I, I worked there in 1967 now the eighth floor was the top floor wasn't it i don't even know what building they're talking about yeah, the, the old dayton's building on seventh uh, and nicollet yeah I think that's where they're talking about. And I think it's eighth floor is the very top floor. Yeah, because that's where you used to go see Santa. Right. You used to yeah. go see Santa on the eighth floor at Dayton's. Yeah, exactly. So I don't know what the hell he did with the pet store then. Uh, whose brilliant idea was this? We blame each other, Netka said. After a couple of days as Netka's roommate, the monkey was evicted. My mom made me bring it back. He said it wouldn't stop pooping. Do you think they went back to the pet shop, returned the monkey, and apologized? Well, think again. I think we just walked into the store, just opened the door, and threw the monkey in, he said. (laughs) I am so convinced that this is their stolen monkey, Christensen wrote. But on Thursday, the monkey story sent Governor Mark Dayton down memory lane to another possible explanation for the monkey. But one thing he made clear, I was not responsible. Dayton, a great-grandson of the founder of Dayton's, told his story at a news conference, mostly about more weighty subjects. Dayton did work at the store in the summer of 68. Oh, God, I worked there a year before he did. Recall that they uh, added a rainforest exhibit on the eighth floor with live monkeys and birds that did not go as planned. Also, oh, this was a year after I worked there. Okay. Somebody didn't figure out that the monkeys were carnivores, Dayton said. I won't get into the graphic details, but the next day they had a netting up to segregate the, and separate the birds from the monkeys. So the monkeys started eating the birds. <laughs> That's really nice. Uh, they said one monkey got out and went into an air duct. So that's where he thinks the mummified monkey came from. Yeah, and it probably got lost and just starved to death because monkeys are dumb. It probably did. It just got lost and starved to death. That's the whole deal. Lead man or lead man, probably lead man. I found the story amusing. I should not be surprised at the responses here. Where's the outrage with the monkey mill selling these animals? 
Why didn't the mother go with them to make sure the uh, wrong was corrected so the monkey didn't have to die this way? What a sad family. You're really, honest to God, so 50 years later, you're going to nail the mother for not going with them to put the monkey back. 50 years later. Mother probably isn't alive anymore. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. So why don't you calm down there? I'm assuming, like most 15-year-olds, he didn't tell his mother it was stolen. She likely assumed he returned it in order to get his money back. Pretty judgmental to blame the family. Yeah, I agree. And by the way, that uh, comment was made by Minnesota Monkey Boy. (laughs) So that's good. I'm sure hearing the story when they were growing up and not knowing then that the monkey died, it probably seemed like a harmless prank. So when they, How do they know it's the same monkey? They just threw the monkey in there. So how, they just assumed that the monkey was the one that went into the air duct? I don't know how you could make that assumption. I am more shocked that Dayton's had a pet store that sold monkeys. Imagine your own pet cat or dog dying this way and think again about how funny this is. No, who said it was funny? I don't really understand. People are get get very upset about uh, the I don't know, uh, but that was yeah that was a year after I worked there, so that's why I don't remember there a pet being a pet uh, store there, because apparently they put it in a year after I got fired, which is I know it's a shock that I got fired from a job, but uh, you know it just is what it is. Uh, so you know, I, what are you going to do? I did the best that I possibly could do, and. Uh, Apparently that wasn't quite good enough. But I, I worked with a guy. There was a uh, apparently there's a town named Starbuck, Minnesota, but I don't think that's where the coffee shop got its name, because he said the guy was a very funny guy. Actually, he was a very very funny guy, but he said at the entrance to the town, there's a big giant buck with a star on its forehead. Get it, Starbuck? Ah, mm. pretty inventive, don't you think? I'm pretty sure. Starbucks got its name from Moby Dick. From Moby Dick? Yeah. Isn't what? Starbuck in Moby Dick? I think he is. No, no. Is there a Starbuck in Moby Dick? Does anybody know? Anyone? Yes. Okay, who's Starbuck in Moby I never read Moby Dick. I have no interest in... Some guy in Moby Dick. I don't know. Yeah, so isn't Moby Dick... Isn't I tried about... reading it, and it's just so long and Yeah, boring. same here. Yeah. Yep. He just goes on and on about nothing. Isn't it about a guy trying to find God or something? Isn't a whale no. supposed to be God? No. no, it's an allegory for obsession. Oh, it's for obsession. Mm-hmm. Okay, so he's obsessed with a great white whale. Yeah, the whale killed his crew, and then he went crazy, and now he dedicates his life to killing it. Okay, so that's what it's about. Because I was told, because I never did, I never read the book, I, I read about two pages and went, this is not for me, I'm, I have no interest <laughs> in this. But, it's, but the obsession part of it was told to me uh, as a very young boy that was religion, that they were li- religiously obsessed. But they're, Well, if they're, God killed your family, then maybe you would try to find God. Well, see, there you go. Find God, track down, and then put a spear right through him. That picture, that guy popped up again. I swear to God, that's Louis C.K. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but that, I swear to God, that's Louis C.K., except for he's not uh, whacking it in front of a bunch yeah. of women, so... That's the one good bit of news. Well, he is uh, working on his arms, though. I would imagine. He is working on his arms, man. Like I said, uh, your average guy cannot do 45-pound uh, curls. No. Uh, you know, the few people I know can. But uh, you get up there. You start getting up around 55, 65, 75-pound uh, curls, you're doing some curling. Yeah. You're doing some curling, and that's a whole different uh, situation. Boy, I tell you that uh, the story we talked about earlier, millennials starting to hate social media, that thing is popping up everywhere. There are now, 
I think about five stories in just local uh, the local press about millennials hating social media. Um, I wonder where this is going to go. You guys have any guess? Because you guys are both millennials. You have any guess where this is going to go? Is this a temporary thing because of of Zuckerberg appearing before Congress? Facebook had to die eventually. So you think it, it just like MySpace, it's just going to go away now? Yeah, that'll be the end of it. Anything that's primarily young people will yeah. always die within you know so many years I because young was, people yeah. always want something new, even if it's the exact same thing just under a different name. That's where they'll go towards. I suppose that is true. That eventually, if it's based on young consumerism, that it's eventually going to die because they'll get bored with it and just want to go away, and that's all there is to it. Right? Look at Snapchat. There's literally no point to it, but it's new, so all the kids went there. Oh, is it? How long has Snapchat been around? I've never been on Snapchat. I, If I had to guess, I would say five or six years. Is that about right, Melina? Uh, yeah, some... Uh, seven years. Oh, not, seven years. Well, six and a half. There you have it. We'll be right back. Tom Bernard Show. I'm Brad Huckle, president of North American Banking Company. Ask one of our bankers what they love about business banking. They always say the relationship with a client. Case in point, True North Oral Surgery and Implants is a longtime customer with a growing practice. Their banker, Julie Marshall, knows the ins and outs of what they do. So when they need working capital, an equipment loan, or funds for expansion, they call Julie. Are you looking for a banker you can count on? Give us a call. This is Tom. Why not bank with my banker, North American Banking Company, a better banking experience. Member FDIC, an equal housing lender. Hi, this is Tom. If you spend any time at the lake, you can relate to the pure joy of hanging out on the dock. You, family, friends, and the calm of the water. If this sounds like heaven, you're going to want a flow dock. Flow docks are rock solid with double bracing to eliminate side-to-side sway. And get this, you could install, level, and remove your flow dock without even getting into the water. You see, Flo's passion to invent a better way to make life easier comes through in every product they make. Right down to flow boat lifts that are quieter faster and effortless to install and use. Are you starting to see a pattern here? Flow is about making things easy, meaning you have more time to enjoy being at the lake. Isn't that why you go there in the first place? See for yourself why they say they've been perfecting leisure time since 1983. Call or visit Flow's newest dealer in Chanhassen, Lakeshore Equipment, 952-474-DOCK, or lakeshoreequipment.com, of course. Flow docks and lifts, a better way. Unbelievable, ladies and gentlemen. Um, Andy and Melina, do you have did you have a dream job when you were a kid? Is there something when you were a kid you wanted to be? Video game reviewer. Video uh, game. Why? So why didn't you do that? Because it's a bad job. Oh, is it? <laughs> yeah. Didn't pay anything. Yeah, it pays poorly, and just, yeah, there's just nothing really great about it. Okay. How about you, Melina? Uh, major league pitcher. Okay. Did you ever try pitching? Yeah, no, no. I played, uh, you know, all throughout, uh, like, well, from T-ball all the way through high school. Oh, you did? Yeah, but not college. No. So you just, you just realized you didn't have what it took in high school. Is that what it was? Well, I do remember in high school I made it on a traveling team and uh, we represented Minnesota and we went down south and uh, we played in this tournament in Florida and I got to pitch 
And, uh, you know, down there, they play year-round. I mean, they are one-sport athletes. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, yeah, this kid from Miami, second pitch, he hit one that still probably has not landed. I mean, he just cracked it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That, I mean, that shows even at the college level when Minnesota – uh, travels south. Those teams play year round, and there's yeah. a huge difference. Huge difference in that. The reason I asked you that question was now. When I was 14, I, I wanted to be become a disc jockey. I wanted to be on the radio when I was 14. So my childhood dream job was a job I ended up doing. I ended up being on the radio. I got to be honest. Even though I've never met you and I don't know anything about you, the odds are that uh, you become the first NBA superstar slash Playboy photographer are pretty much zero. So maybe it's time to stop holding out hope. According to a new survey, less than one out of ten people have their childhood dream job. Less than one out of ten. But about sixty percent of us are still clinging to at least a little hope that it could happen one day. Here are the ten most common dream jobs we had as kids that we're not doing now as adults. Astronaut? Now, number one would be a pro athlete. So, Melina, you had the number one dream as a child. (laughs) Not surprising. Pro athlete. Okay, we'll go to number 10, a police officer. Number nine's a doctor. Number eight, a dancer. Number seven, an actor, pilot, writer, veterinarian, teacher, musician, or singer. So, Andy, a reviewer. Oh, writer. I guess a reviewer would be a writer. Kind of. Kind of in a way. So, yeah, your your uh, childhood dreams. I'm really shocked that uh, people didn't want to be disc jockeys when they were kids. It's, uh, <laughs> it's deeply hurt, uh, hurtful that uh, I was the only one who wanted to be uh, a disc jockey. But, you know, I guess I'll get over it. It's, oh, it's National Grilled Cheese Day. Did you know that? Oh. Hmm. Did you also know that 87% of people in America love grilled cheese sandwiches? The other 13% won't eat them at all. I, I never eat grilled cheese sandwiches. I like them, but I just never eat them. I haven't had one in probably 20 years. Yeah. 20 years. It's been a while for me, too. And why do you think that is? It's just too, they're too, too much of a pain in the ass to make? I just don't care enough about them. Yeah. That, see, I feel the same way. They're good, but it's like, eh. Yeah. But I just remember, you know, too, when, mm. I, when, when I was a kid, though, I mean, there are certain things that I look back on now. Number one at the top of the list is canned tuna because we were so poor. That's all we could afford. Yeah, and, you know we could not yeah. afford chicken of the sea or Stark kissed or whatever. Sure, but still that that smell that oily, you know, canned tuna just yeah, ugh. it's yeah. nasty. Yeah, it is. It's nasty. The oily tuna, like the packed in water, came along later. People don't realize that, I guess. But tuna packed in water came along later. Tuna packed in oil was just vile. Yeah. It was terrible. It was poor people tuna. Yep. It really was. There's uh oh God, listen to this. This is this might be good news for you criminals out there. <laughs> Taxes are due on April seventeenth this year, which is uh, this coming Tuesday. If that's news to you, it might be time to panic or just file for an extension. But the good news is your chances of being audited are the lowest they've been in fifteen years. <laughs> According to stats from the IRS, only 1 in 160 tax returns were audited last year. That's the lowest it's been since 2002. The highest was in 2010 and 11 when 1 in 90 people got audited. I I am amazed they could audit that many tax returns. 1 in 90 people? It seems like a waste of time. It kind of seems like it. Did that many people cheat on their taxes that one in 90 people had to be audited? Well, I know. Just begging and looking for money. I know when you started, when they made it so you have to put your children's social security numbers on your taxes, 
like millions and millions of people, like children, stopped existing. Really? Because everyone was just like, oh, yeah, I totally have eight kids. Oh, that's one of people those. Are, yeah. yeah, people are awful. Yeah. Well, I suppose 2010, well, I though, too, back. we're coming off the recession. It just, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. Twenty In 2008, the recession, uh, excuse me, the, yeah, the recession hit in 2000, October 2008. So, yeah, those 2010 and 11 tax returns were a big deal. You're absolutely right about that. But I do remember back when I was very, very young, you could claim up to 99 dependents. A lot of dependents. But then when you couldn't produce them, it's just so they wouldn't take your taxes out. You'd pay them at the end of the year. Uh, but they stopped letting you do that because they needed the cash flow, apparently. That was a long, long time ago. Uh, by the way, it could drop even lower because IRS funding was slashed by about 8% last year and over 7,000 auditing jobs went away. Whether you think that's good or not is up for debate, but it does mean you're probably less likely to get audited this time around. If you made less than $200,000 last year, you have about a 0.6% chance of an audit compared to around 1% in 2011. If you made more than that, your chances are higher, but even the odds for people to make over a million dollars are way down from 12% in 2011 to 4% now. I will tell you this, though, because people over the years have stolen money from the family. You know, we, we would try to help out a charity or try to build houses for poor people or, you know, after Hurricane Katrina tried to build housing for military and people stole the money, they stripped all the equity out of it. So I had to deal with the IRS for several years in a row now. The IRS has been very, very, very easy to work with. They're, they're, you know, not bitchy at all. They're very easy to work with, and they'll, they'll work with you as much as they possibly can. So I don't, I don't have this huge fear of the IRS that a lot of people do. Well, here's how scummy the average person is. In 1987, they started requiring you to put Social Security numbers for your dependents on uh, the tax return. And that year, there were 7 million fewer dependents than the previous year. <laughs> 7 million? Yep. Well, there you so, go. So, yeah. People like to be <laughs> awful. Just stealing money from other people, basically. Yeah, that's what they're doing. So, yeah, basically, if you have a, a terrific fear of the IRS, I, I wouldn't because they're they're pretty even keel. They're not going to go, oh, that, they were not allowing that. Unless, of course, you're trying to cheat on your taxes. Then you're going to get your ass handed to you because you're not supposed to cheat on your taxes. It's not a good idea. It's just, it's not a good idea to cheat on your taxes. Let's learn that, shall we? No, just, don't you know, try. Don't take any loopholes if you're not absolutely sure about them or, you know, no tips or cheats or secrets. Just, yeah, you know. just, just not cheating at anything, old, you know. anything in your life. Just do not cheat. Well, that helps. Yeah. Well, how realistic is that, though? Yeah. most people are filthy. Yeah, that's the thing. Yeah. That's the whole problem is most, most people are filthy. I just realized something on my last day in the studio, that if I took the light and put it over the mic rather than under the mic, it works better. It's really a good thing to learn on the last day and the last hour that I'll use it. That's really good, Tom. Oh, yeah. I saw them. They're installing a vending machine in my building. They are? The last day I'm here. <laughs> so, You're going to get a vending machine. That's fun. Yeah, that's not necessarily good. I, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, you're right. That's that's not good. Just go down there and buy uh, everything in the, in the machine. Clean them out before you exactly. leave. Exactly. Uh, sports rule books can be very dense and complicated because they have no they have to account for every possible scenario and naturally some strange rules and conditions have made their way into them. USA Today put together a list of 13 bizarre rules in sports. Here are nine. I don't I've never heard of these, most of them. 
Uh, number one, NFL rule number 1132, the one-point safety. It is possible to score a single point in a football game, although it's a big, long shot. It happens when there's a safety on an extra point attempt, which results in one point for the tackling team. But if wait a second, how can you get a safety? You'd have to tackle someone <laughs> 85 yards downfield. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's happened a couple of times in college, but it's never happened in the NFL. I, 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 I would have to be that there's a bad snap on the extra point kick because a two-point is when you pass a run into the end zone. That's two points. So it would have to be a kick, and what would happen is a bad snap, and the kicker would pick up the ball and run backwards trying to get away from everybody and then get tackled in the end zone for a one-point safety. Yeah, if the defense gets the ball and then gets tackled in their own end zone, I, I guess I don't. That's, yeah, the, that's, that's the result. So that's what it is. If the defense gets the ball, so they block the extra point, but then you tackle them in the end zone. If they get, get the ball, point. they get the ball on a conversion attempt. Then they go backwards into their own end zone and get tackled. But think about that's it. Weird. That'd be sixty-seven yards minimum. I would. Like, yeah, minimum. No. Well, yeah, that's. <laughs> That's why it's never happened before. <laughs> and it's only happened twice in college and never in the NFL. NFL Rule 3-8, the drop kick. Instead of kicking an extra point normally, a player can take the snap and drop the ball on the ground and kick it off the short hop through the uprights. Ideally, Doug Flutie successfully did it at the end of the 2005 season, mostly as a joke. Before that, it hadn't been converted since 1941. You know, he used to do that with Murray Warmath with the uh, Golden Gopher football team. They used to drop kick once in a while. MLB rule number 7.05, no hat catches. A player is not allowed to catch a ball in his hat. If he does, even on the simplest fly ball to the center, uh, the batter is awarded three bases. If you try to catch the ball with your hat, you get a triple out of it. I've never heard of that. These are, these are kind of interesting, actually, because I've never heard of any of them. Well, the drop kick I did, I guess. Uh, NFL rule number 11.43, the fair catch kick. If a punter, uh, a punt returner calls for a fair catch, the receiving team then has the option of attempting an undefended field goal from the spot where the ball was caught. But this just doesn't happen. It's been over 40 years since it worked. The San Francisco 49ers attempted one in 2013. It was a 71-yard kick, and it failed. Why would you even attempt that? Yep. <laughs> okay. Uh, NHRL rule number 60.3, the blood rule, high-sticking is a minor penalty that sends players to the penalty box for two minutes, but if the high-sticking causes injury, refs can assess a double minor, which means four minutes in the box. So what constitutes an injury? Basically, blood has to be drawn. NCAA, I do remember this rule. NCAA basketball rule number 4-1, no dunking before a game. When the final 20-minute countdown begins before tip-off, players are no longer allowed to dunk. A Kansas State player got whistled for it a few years ago. If you do, you can catch a technical even though the game hasn't started. Other little-known results for technicals include face guarding, climbing or lifting a teammate, attempting a free throw that's not yours to take, and possessing or using tobacco. I didn't know that. Oh. What do you, where would you put tobacco in a basketball <laughs> uniform anyway? <laughs> Yeah, in the basketball. Unbelievable. MLB rule number two, the the up-the-middle foul ball. A line drive up the middle can be a foul ball if it slams into the pitching rubber and caroms into foul territory. I saw that actually happen once 
without being touched by a fielder. That makes sense logically, but it's hard to imagine it ever happened on a hot shot at the mill. I actually did see it happen once at a town ball game. It hit the rubber and kicked sideways foul. That was, wow. It was pretty cool to watch, actually. It's not that hard to do, actually. European Chess Union Regulation 13-2, no cleavage. Back in 2012, <laughs> the European Chess Union announced that women wearing shirts or blouses may only have, quote, the second from the top button open during the competition. It's basically an anti-cleavage rule, but in the new edition of the rules, there's no mention of the second from the top button nonsense, so apparently they quietly got rid of it. It's not there anymore. Uh, and finally... Golf rule number 2310, the fruit shot. If your ball is embedded inside a piece of fruit, you must play the ball fruit as it lies. So in other words, if you hit a golf ball and it goes inside of an orange, you hit an orange and it goes inside the orange, you have to hit the orange. Because you have to play the ball slash fruit as it lies. Uh, if your ball lands in a bunker directly in front of an apple uh, core, the apple core is considered a natural object that can't be removed without penalty. It doesn't matter if there are apple trees in the vicinity or if it was left there by another golfer, but if your ball lands on or next to a candy wrapper, you are allowed to remove the candy wrapper, even if you have to pick up your ball to remove it, because a candy wrapper is man-made and not natural. Now you know about every odd, bizarre rule in the history of sports. We'll be back, Tom Bernard. It's Tom telling you how easy it's been for me to lose weight on the Nutramost weight loss plan. I've started up another round at the new Nutramost Plymouth location, and those unwanted pounds are going fast. I've lost over 34 pounds. Nutramost is so easy, and they guarantee that you'll lose 20 pounds or more in just 40 days. There's no exercise, shots, drugs, prepackaged food, and I'm never hungry. Nutramost has helped me change my life, and I know they can help you, too. Nutramost of Plymouth is hosting a second free informational dinner. Learn how to have success losing weight just like me. Neil Sheehy, Nutramost client and owner who played nine years in the NHL and is an agent to some of the NHL's current top players, will be at the dinner, and so will I, actually. It's Monday, April 30th, 6 p.m. at Jake City Grill in Plymouth, located around the corner from Nutramost, just off Highway 55 and 494. Space is limited. Call 763-333-7337 to register. That's 763-333-7337. I'm here with my real estate agent, Chris Lindahl. And after seeing what he did for me, I asked if he had something that would help our listeners. Chris, what do you got? We have something very special for KQ listeners. April 16th through the 18th, the Chris Lindahl team is hosting our SellerWorkshop.com series, where we're going to teach you how to net between thirty dollars to $60,000 more on your home sale. And the best part is it's absolutely free. So that sounds great, Chris, but what's the catch? Tom, here's what I'll share with you. The number one core value at the Chris Lindahl team is to be generous. I have a teaching degree, and this is my passion to educate homeowners in the Twin Cities on how to sell your house the right way so you don't end up leaving tens of thousands of dollars on the table going through the traditional real estate process. So go to sellerworkshop.com for times and locations and to sign up for your free ticket. The seller workshops are happening April 16th through the 18th. Seating is limited, and trust me, they sell out fast. Visit sellerworkshop.com or call 763-401-SOLD. What is this song? It's uh, Sweetest Devotion by Adele. Sweetest Emotion. 
Devotion. Oh, yeah, I recommend it. Yeah. Sweetest Devotion? Yeah. I do remember this song, though. That woman can sing, man. Oh, you yeah. ever seen her live? No. I wish. She is. She's incredible. Although she does like to drink and swear a lot when she's in concert. <laughs> so she sings these lovely love songs and these sad tales. And then she drinks and swears a lot, including the F-bomb. But somebody told me she stopped doing that now. She's gotten a little bit old and she decided she doesn't want to do that anymore. So I don't know what to tell you. Is Gene ready to go? Yep. Gene Beard, our special guest. How are you, Gene? I'm wonderful, thank you. How are you? Marvelous. Great. Uh, the Seven Emotional Secrets of Parents with Autistic Children, uh, Autism and the Rest of Us, and Finding the Gray. Parenting a child is a difficult job, but parenting a child on the autism spectrum is even more so. That is why starting April 1st, the National Autism Academy made its uh, pioneering seven-part series entitled The Seven Emotional Secrets of Parents with Autistic Children, uh, National Autism Academy dot, uh, is it L pages or I pages? Or it could be one Sorry? page. I, I'll find them. I was just looking at the, uh, the the website. I wanted to get the website correct. Is it, so it's a National Autism Academy dot, is that com. I pages? Dot com. Dot com. So, but it is I pages. Yeah. Okay, good. I want to make sure that it wasn't L pages or something else. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's available free to those interested in understanding life with autism, um, the spectrum, the, the, the autism spectrum, uh, how many, is there a percentage of people we know are on the spectrum or is everyone somewhere on the spectrum? Uh, is there any knowledge of how many people are on the spectrum, the autism spectrum? Well, uh, autism speaks who's, you know, one of the largest, um, well-known organizations in the autism community, on their website, they're saying 70 million people worldwide. That's their... 70 that's million the, worldwide. 70 million people worldwide. Right now, the CDC, the official CDC statistics, Center of Disease Control Statistics, says one in 68 children is currently being diagnosed. But there are now a lot of new reports coming out, and they're starting to flirt with the idea of uh, 2% of boys. Two percent of boys. Yeah, one in forty-five. Really? Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, um, Gina, I have to ask you a question because I'm, I'm, uh, uh, well, I graduated. I was supposed to graduate high school in 1969. Okay, I don't remember. Um, well, there, well, there was no such thing as the the word autism at that point. Was it the, that word hadn't been used yet? Had it in the 60s? Well, yes, actually, it started um, probably. I think it was in the '40s that was the original, oh, okay. but it was very rare. It was one in one in twelve thousand kids were being diagnosed with autism, so it was really very rare. Yeah, because I don't remember any ever going to school or or a child in the neighborhood uh, with autism. Although, would they have been in the '60s and early '70s? Would they have been considered to be just um, have some other mental illness of some kind? Probably, uh, is, is, yeah. That's the, probably the, what happened then, yeah. Yeah, the lower-functioning children would have been considered, I think we used to call them, mentally retarded. Um, that's, mentally that's retarded, right. They probably would have been considered back then. But then the higher-functioning kids, they would have been considered a bully, uh, just a bad kid, a not-nice oh, kid, yeah. someone who did 
yeah. you know, bad things. You know, the, the kid that would torture an animal or a frog or whatever. You know, I mean, those were the kids that, that we just called them bad kids then. And today we're seeing that, that what's driving their behavior is really, is really autism. And so they're being, you know, not, not called just bad kids anymore. They're being diagnosed with autism. Right. Yeah. You know, Gina, it's interesting because I've learned something already. I didn't know autistic children would do something like torture an, an animal. Um, I am some, not all, of course. Yeah, yes. No, every child is different. But, yes, that, that's one. On a lot of the diagnostic um, evaluations that they have, you know, 100 questions, that's one of the questions. Some children do things like that. Some children. Yeah. Well, I do remember one time in an alley in North Minneapolis, uh, I watched a, a young kid, he was probably, I don't know, he was 16 and I was probably about 12 or something like that. There was a cat walking down the alley and he walked over and picked up the cat and drop kicked it. And I thought, yeah. what is that all about? Yeah. So there, there's a possibility he may have been autistic. Maybe, yeah. Yeah, because I just, I couldn't understand any rationale why you would do something like that. Yeah. You know? Well, yeah, and I think as, as the world has changed in the last, particularly in the last 30 years, you know, people with autism are, are standing out more and, and they're experiencing more anxiety. You know, I, I just retired from a 30-year mm. career in sales. And when I, was, when I started in sales, if I wanted to uh, sell something to someone, I called their office, talked to their secretary, made an appointment, went to see them, got their, I was in graphic arts, got their specs, brought it back, got a quote and mailed it to them. And then I followed up with a phone call. By the time I, right. I retired last year, if, if I didn't have my quote in their inbox before we hung up, I was late. So the speed of information, the demand uh, from our culture today for information being delivered faster yeah. and faster and faster and for the excessive amount of information that's coming into us, because autism really is a, is a neurological processing difference. It's a different way of processing information on a neurological level so when you know when all that information is flooding into us i think that that's actually um kind of aggravating the situation just just what's happened to us culturally i mean think back to the year 1900 if you wanted to talk to someone you got on your horse and you rode across you know the field and you talked to your neighbor right. and invited them to come for dinner next week you know i mean but today you know if if you get an invitation and you don't respond in a half an hour on your email you're rude so you know it's I think that there's a lot <laughs> yeah, of demand, right? Yeah, it's very, very true. Yeah. I do want to get into these seven emotional secrets of parents with autistic children, but I, I want to ask you a question. Mm -hmm. I have a, a friend uh, who has an autistic son, and he's, I guess he's in his mid-teens now. And for some reason, and I don't know why, he, um, he's one of one of uh, the type of person, one of, he has autism, he does not like to be touched. Mm -hmm. And that that's semi common, isn't it? That they don't like people touching them. Um, um, yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, for some reason, and I and his parents don't know why, and I don't know why, but he will shake my hand, but he won't shake anyone else's hand, and I don't know why that is because I don't really know him all that well. I only see him once in a while, but he extends his hand to shake my hand, and I don't know why. Is there any any explanation for that? Well, could be a lot of things. Could be that he he recognizes you as as a celebrity because of your career and mm, your work. Maybe. Yeah, um, maybe it could yeah. be that um, one time 
he saw his dad shake your hand, and so he thought okay. that was an appropriate greeting. Um, yep. It could be that for whatever reason you make him feel comfortable enough that he can do that, that he can reach out to you physically um, and, t- and let, you know, shake your hand. I mean, that is a skill that we can teach our children. Um, I, have, I have two sons on the spectrum, and both of my sons would shake mm-hmm. your hand as well. Um, it, it wasn't something that necessarily came naturally, but it's a skill that they learned. And my children are older. They're 19 and 22 now. And so they know that, that's, that that is protocol. That's the rules. And some kids are rule followers. So when they understand that's the rules, that's what they'll do. I would, I, my um, best guess is something along those lines, yeah. Yeah. A doctor once told me, he thought, because I, I tend to, and I don't care who it is, man, it has nothing to do with gender or, or orientation or race or anything, including uh, autism, whatever. I treat everybody the same. Mm-hmm. I just, I will joke around with them. I will talk to them. I will do, a doctor thinks it's because I treated him just like everybody else that then he, he felt very comfortable and he shook, he would shake my hand because be. I wasn't treating him differently. Right. That I, and the, by the way, that, that does bother me. You have two children on the spectrum. Doesn't it bother you when people go out of their way to pretend that they should treat your children differently? Well, <laughs> Yes and no. Yes and no. I mean, uh, on the one hand, okay. I, I like that they that they may recognize them. And my children are very high-functioning, and they've had a lot of interventions. So if they came in the room, you wouldn't really know they're on the spectrum unless right, I okay. told you. Yeah. yeah. Because right. they've mastered a lot of different areas of life that have made it possible for them to sort of fly under the radar on the, on the autism issue. But, um, sure. you know, I, I think that there's so much ignorance in, in the world about autism. So many people don't really understand it. They still, people still have this image of a child rocking and drooling, you know, in the corner. And yeah. that's, that's yeah. not autism today. Autism today is a lot different than that because there's such a wide range. Many, there are many people out there that are on the spectrum that are managing well enough that they don't even have a diagnosis. So That's yeah. terrific. Yeah. Tell me about the seven emotional secrets of parents with autistic children. That's yeah. fascinating. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it, it's a very, um, kind of a very raw look at the feelings that we, that we experience as parents. And I really kind of, I took it all from my own personal experience. I went into my own thoughts and I said, what are the secret things that I think that I don't say out loud? What are the things that I, that I feel that, that I don't share with people because there's, I think there's some shame around feeling uncomfortable about your child's diagnosis. So, you know, I think there are a lot of parents who, who wanted their children to, you know, a dad who wanted his son to be a football player. And when that doesn't happen, he's grieving and, and he's sad and he's disappointed. And you, you never want to say I'm disappointed because of the way my child is. That's, that's just, it no. feels so, it feels so, um, so, um, you know, like you're being disloyal or like you don't love your child. And, the, you know, the, these seven emotional secrets, this video series is being recorded, was recorded with a woman named Lisa Dinhofer, who is a thanatologist. So she's an expert in grief and grieving. Um, and so, you know, she, she and I talked about some things. I happened to meet her at a media event in New York, and we were talking about, um, you know, some, some of the emotional experiences that we have and how you know we we could help normalize some of these feelings for parents 
and air, air out some of these feelings that parents of children on the spectrum are having because we, uh, we're dealing with what they call a living loss, what thanatologists call a living loss, because we are, mm-hmm. we are grieving over and over again. You know, we might grieve when, when our child, um, you know, doesn't, um, doesn't get to go to regular school and has to go to a special school. We might grieve when they, when they don't have friends, they don't get invited to birthday parties. That's really painful. We might grieve when our next-door neighbor's child, you know, graduates from law school, um, at, you know, uh, with some high honors, recognizing that that will never happen for us and for our child. So there right. are a lot of milestones right. that we experience in life that, that tend to kick off that that little bit of grief and that little, that, that sort of, I don't want to say you're feeling sorry for ourselves, but feeling sad and feeling the loss of the things that we dreamed of and that we hoped for. None of us, none of us became parents not hoping our children would, would far exceed the, the things that we've done, right? I mean, that's, that's just what a, a parent does. Yeah, and, uh, that's, that's yeah. how it's supposed to happen, yes. Right, yeah, right. Absolutely. I would right. say this, though. You wouldn't trade either one of your children in for another child, would you? No, of course not. Of course, of course not. not. And See, I and, and, that's and I all know that, that there are so many parents that have much much more difficult things to deal with. Children with cancer yes. and leukemia, and yep. you know, and I, yep. I I totally recognize that. And my grief is still legitimate because I still have sure. losses. That's why I call these sure. the seven emotional secrets because they're things that we don't that we don't talk about very openly. Um, you know, in our culture and and. In the United States, especially, Lisa points out that we don't have a a lot of patience for grief in the United States. You know, it's like, aren't you over that yet? You've known for ten years that your kid was on the spectrum. Aren't you over that yet? Well, no, That's you're not over sad. it. You're never over it. Um, you know, it's something that no. that continues in your life forever. I think that's what you coming forward and talking about this is a wonderful situation. By the way, uh, for a free copy of the the um, uh, the book, you can go to NAA Books. It stands for National Autism Academy, naabooks.com. You can also go to nationalautismacademy.ipages.co, The Seven Emotional Secrets. Thank you so much for your time today. I think it's, I really hope we get to the point someday where everybody is accepted equally and all of these things that are so important to everybody else. Um, Leave families alone. You know, I, it, I, I, I'm very, very happy for your children. They have you as a mother. Don't forget that. Thank you. Thank you very That's much. That's the truth. Jean, thank you for your time. Have a wonderful day. Thank you. You too, Tom. Thanks. We will talk to you. Tom Bernard Show. 